agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Oklahoma Christian University political scientist, Trey Orndorff. Thanks for having me back on the show, Mike. It's been a while since it's been you and me. You know, it really has. It's it's funny because, as as you know, a a little while ago, we were uh, not not talking, but we were actually sort of chatting online. And I said, you know, it's been a while. I'd really like to... Really like to talk with you, and all of a sudden the universe said, "Hey, let's send Jay on vacation, and uh, Mike and Trey could do the show together." And here we are. I kind of thought you just like you know pushed him to the side or something, and you were like, "Listen, <laughs> it's go. time for Trey." <laughs> Jay, you need to move on for a week. No, not at all. Jay, Jay is off on vacation, but he uh, much much richly deserved. He works very hard, and uh, uh, we wish him wish him the best relaxation. And of course, uh, I'm happy as always to get an opportunity to do the show with you. But before we get started with the show, first we want to thank our two newest Patreon supporters, Kimberly and Dennis. And also just to let everyone know that when you are a Patreon supporter, you get that second full-length bonus show every week. You get ad-free versions of all of our shows, as well as other things at different levels. And to check it all out, just go to patreon.com slash politics, guys. And if you'd like to get that bonus weekly show, but you just are not in the place where you can financially support the show right now, totally not a problem. Send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you set up. Also, I should point out that we are, you know, a part of the 21st century. We are on Venmo at Politics Guys if you want to support the show that way. And on today's show, we will be talking about the 36 states that are suing Google, Donald Trump suing Facebook and Twitter, President Biden's executive order on promoting competition, Biden's defense of the Afghanistan withdrawal in the face of a resurgent Taliban, ranked choice voting in a New York City mayoral primary, and critical race theory. Now, that is an awful lot, and but whatever we can't get to on today's episode, we will discuss on the Midweek Supporters Show. Before we get to all of that, we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back to start the podcast. All right, Trey, so let's start off with this week, the bipartisan group of 36 state attorneys general filing an antitrust suit against Google, targeting what they allege to be the anti-competitive nature of Google's Play Store, at the prime, which, of course, is the primary way in which Android phone users find and install apps on their phones. I'm saying that, Trey, partly for you, because I know you have no knowledge of the Play Store being an <laughs> Apple guy. But anyway... The attorneys general claim that Google favors its Play Store over other app stores for Android to the extent that, in their words, developers have no reasonable choice but to distribute their apps through the Play Store as opposed to other competing stores. Now, the suit also alleges that the 30% commission that Google charges for the sale of apps and in-app purchases on the Play Store is what they call extravagant, and it's only possible because of Google's unfair competitive advantage. I should mention, though, that in response to pressure on this particular point, Google cut that commission back to 15% at the beginning of this month, at least for the first $1 million generated by the developer, with that 30% fee then kicking in after that point. And this all comes after the major antitrust suit filed against Google by the federal government in October of 2020. And that was focusing on special deals between Google and other companies related to uh, allegedly anti-competitive practices in online search. And so in response to this latest suit, Google's senior director of public policy wrote in the blog post, It's strange that a group of state attorneys general chose to file a lawsuit attacking a system that provides more openness and choice than others, which clearly was a shot at Apple, which, of course, now, Trey, you will know, has a similar commission structure to Google's, but unlike Google, doesn't allow any other mechanism for installing apps except its own app store. So, Trey... What what's your you know take on all this? Do you think Google is being anti-competitive here? And if they are, do you think it's likely that this lawsuit is going to force them in some way to change their practices? You know, it's a great question. And uh, you know, reading through the actual formal complaint in the document here, I think there's going to be a couple of issues when this case first comes up. One of them, of course, is that 
one of the complaints alleges is that you that most providers don't have alternative app stores, but that's actually just wrong. As a matter of fact, Samsung has a Samsung store, and that's loaded on all Samsung phones uh, on Android when they're shipped to consumers or purchased by consumers. So there was a couple of things here, I think, in the details that are going to come forward that's going to make this a little bit messier uh, than the complaint as I'm reading it right now. Now, I mean, the other part of this, and you're right, that I think Android's going to have, um, excuse me, Google is going to have as a, or I shouldn't say Alphabet, um, is going to have as, as a comeback, of course, is they're going to want to take shots at iOS because, of course, Android a lot allows for what's called sideloading, the ability to have alternative stores. As a matter of fact, overseas, uh, the Play Store isn't the biggest uh, store for use on Android. As a matter of fact, in China, for example, there's a couple of uh, sideloaded app stores that are uh, far more popular. Uh, but I don't think that that's going to kind of take away any of the, the thrust of this. Uh, but I, I, w I would say I think it's a little bit more complex. I, I was actually a little bit surprised in the filing when you get down into the nitty gritty to see a few things like that, where even somebody like me, I mean, I'm not Jay and I'm not um, Ken, I'm not a lawyer on this, where I thought, oh, I don't know how that's going to go looking forward. And that's one of the things that Ken and I sometimes get into in the show. So. But I mean, obviously, this this has to do with some broader political questions as well, which is how much power do we want to have uh, for these kinds of large companies to have over our lives as they increasingly have more and more of our data? And I really think that's a lot more about this than maybe this particular uh, uh, this particular set of uh, suits from the 36 states. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think you should point out that even though there are competitors, and that's something certainly that Google has pointed out, it's, you know, as you as you said, but still, the Google Play Store distributes more than 90% of all mm -hmm. Android apps. So they have pretty, you know, close to a monopoly on that, even if there are other alternatives. And, you know, what really struck me as being seemingly, I think, obviously anti-competitive is that apps sold in stores other than the Play Store can't buy advertising on Google search results page or on YouTube or the Google display network. Now, if that doesn't scream, That's where I think there's going to be some more serious issues. Yeah, yes, I agree. Yeah. And not only that, but well, I don't know. I see this, I guess, in a way as somewhat different from the Apple situation, because even though, you know, Apple is a, a kind of a walled garden sort of thing completely from the beginning, Google said, you know, we are committed to an open, to a competitive ecosystem. But, and, and correct me here if I'm wrong, my take on Apple's uh, argument for their totally closed system is that they want to retain that exclusive control on their devices to ensure what, what, what they say is to ensure quality and safety, basically. Precisely. Uh, you know, the difference between the Android and iOS, for example, even in their stores is is that iOS, for example, has content filtering. Right. So uh, in the Play Store, for example, you can have applications that would not pass. Uh, you'd call it a morality test. There's they're effectively kind of uh, moral systems, as uh, Steve Jobs once famously said, if you want to get porn by an Android. Um so, yeah, I mean, it, it gets, it gets that, that walled garden is pretty high in the case of iOS. You know, one of the things that's that's worth thinking about, of course, is, is you know, well, if you're going to sue uh, Google, why not sue Apple? I think one of the reasons they're starting with Android uh, is that, you know, Android has 73 percent approximately of uh, all smartphone penetration. I think that to make the anti-competitive practice, given the current state of laws on that, I don't think iOS would qualify given how few relatively uh, people actually own Apple phones. Mm. I mean, well, you know, I, do, but. I mean, but basically, right, we have a situation where for smartphones, uh, which I would say are becoming yeah, more and more indispensable for, for a lot, for so many things, right? There are only two real choices iOS or Android. And then once you make a choice, you pretty quickly get locked into an ecosystem that's controlled almost completely, in Apple's case, completely by Apple or almost completely by Google. And so given that that's the reality that, that we face, at least in the United States, you know, there are two questions at least come up to me. And the first is, is this healthy? And second, if it's not, what I guess, if anything, should government do about about it? What What do you think? I mean, do you think this is a a healthy 
situation? Well, that's actually part of the complaint, uh, uh, Mike. I mean, one of the complaints is is that effectively, because all of these applications are then locked into a particular platform, uh, then that you can't easily leave, and therefore that's what requires. Th that's another element of this being anti-competitive. Now. What's weird, if you look at this historically when it comes to technology, this is not a new question, right? I mean, if you go back to the 90s, we were having this similar kinds of conversations about Windows uh, and, uh, you know, the Windows anti-competitive behavior. If we take a look at what happened there, I can't say that a lot changed uh, for Microsoft, right? I mean, uh, the DOJ files lawsuits against uh, anti-competitive practices. They unbundle Internet Explorer. And, you know, that's pretty much the major changes that happen in the case of uh, the Microsoft case. In the case of Android and iOS, what's weird is, is you actually have a situation we talk about only having two. Uh, but as you in just raw percentage terms, there are actually more even Tizen users. Uh, that's Samsung's platform of choice in the United States. So the Samsung platform, there are more of those users than there were alternative platforms to uh, Microsoft back in the 90s, <laughs> right? Just as a wow. percentage of devices and uses. So, you know, today we do theoretically have two major players with a third kind of bit player in a way that we never even had in the 90s. So I, I don't disagree with the idea that we could potentially have anti-competitive behaviors, but I don't think we have to look that far back to say, this seems to be something that's unique to software and that we've had this before and even more concentrated. Yeah. Because again, uh, back in the 90s, the you know, again, Android iOS penetration, you're talking about 73, 26 approximately percentage points, um, with the remainder just being uh, uh, primarily Samsung's stuff. But when you go back into the 90s, you have Microsoft penetration being nearly ubiquitous. Um, you know, Mac OS in the 90s is almost non-existent. I, I wonder, though, if it makes a difference that it seems to me, at least, that ha having you know, lived through both of these eras, that smartphones yeah. are much more of almost an essential thing now than computers were in the 90s. You know, a large percentage of Americans got by just fine in their daily lives without PCs or Macs in the 90s. But more and more, I found, I know this in particularly because my wife has been a strong sort of resistor of smart. She has a smartphone, but she doesn't like to use it all that often. And more okay, and more, yeah. it's been difficult for her to live her life without having it for all sorts of things, you know, two-factor authorization for banking or other mm. stuff. We'll text you a whatever. It's like, well, what do you do if you have a smartphone? Oh, so many things like that. And so I wonder if that makes a difference. And you, you can almost see a point in the not-too-distant future where where a smartphone becomes akin to almost like a like a public use like, like electricity or something like that right where technically you can do without it you know but really <laughs> it's hard to operate in the modern world without having that and i think that is that makes a difference because then all of a sudden if you're locked into the system that you need as opposed to this kind of voluntary system well that seems to me to be uh an important difference no, and I don't disagree with that, but I think what you're going to end up having to prove, and that's what I think is unique about software, is that, and maybe, and that maybe there's a study to be done here, but it seems that one of the reasons we end up with singular companies having software control is because lots and lot there's advantages to lots and lots of people buying into the same one. So I think the same kinds of anti-competitive practices you might have over, say, back in the day, breaking up AT&T may not have the same kinds of outcomes that you're hoping for if you're trying to break up software. Because I think a lot of what people like is there are advantages to being in similar uh, operating systems. Yeah. And really the only way to fix the underlying anti-competitive practices here, I mean, in the, in the complaint, the idea here is, is look, if we open this up to more Play Stores, excuse me, if we open this up to more stores than just the Play Store, we're gonna have more uh, operating system competition. But I think even if you had a bunch of new operating system competition, I don't know how many consumers would would actually end up voting for those. Because, again, we've already, we, historically, we've had two other huge players make ginormous pushes into the market. You have Microsoft, who tried to make a huge push with their uh, Microsoft uh, platform, put billions and billions of dollars behind it and got zero traction. 
And likewise, you had Jeff Bezos with Amazon put billions and billions of dollars into a platform and, as a matter of fact, launched the phone uh, and had almost zero penetration. So even if even if competitors can be allowed in the sense of, you know, you have regulatory agencies make that happen, I'm not sure that you're going to see people's behavior radically change. So, I mean, there's two different reasons you can have a kind of a dominant monopoly. One possibility is you have anti-competitive things going on, like we talked about a minute ago. Uh, I think a lot of the Google search over privacy and not allowing uh, competitors to have advertising space, I think there's a lot of traction there. On the other hand, historically, I just don't see what the traction is going to be for pr- creating other OSs. I do. Given I, I, think, I think I think that's people's behavior. I, I, well, words, I, yeah. I think even if we just started all over again, you'd still end up with just a couple of players. See, I don't think that, uh, at least in this Google search, it, this Google suit, it's not about the OS. It's about it's about distributing apps in the OS. Just like if Microsoft, I mean, you know, if you're you know if you're law if you're locked into say uh, Windows or, or Mac, it's not necessarily getting people to change to to Linux or something like that. It's it's Microsoft, you know, saying, for instance, well, we're not going to let you install word processing apps or other apps unless you do it through the Microsoft Store. And by the way, we're going to take a huge cut from all developers. And so that's where I think you certainly can envision a solution and uh, that that would be more competitive. And now I don't think that solution is multiple app stores because most people, you know, you want to go to whether it's the, the I mean, I'm not going to go to a whole bunch of places. I want everything to be in the Play Store because I I don't want to follow, you know, all these different app stores. But the issue I think is to open up in some way these app stores to other, you know, to other folks and not these sort of extravagant uh these extravagant fees basically. And you know, I, I think we've actually done something along these lines uh, in another in another area, and that's for utilities, right? Because the lines, the pipes, if you will, uh, for gas are they're common carriers, but they can be used by all sorts of different competing companies. I get every week probably it seems like I get something from another company that wants me to change my energy provider or my gas provider, but it's still the same set of lines, and so. In a way, I'm almost arguing that if if phones and apps have become so central, so necessary that you can see them in a way almost as kind of public carriers, well, then these stores should be open in the same way. And, and, and maybe at least we should consider subjecting them to the same sort of regulation while at the same time still making sure that the companies, Apple and Google, that maintain these and have built up these structures are fairly compensated for that. I think there is there is something to your uh, to your analogy there. But I think the piece that makes it a little bit different is, is that whereas you could make that argument about, say, IS, uh, Internet service providers, ISPs, which is, I think, something that we're going to be talking about on the show as we move forward. Uh, again, that's one of the things in Biden's executive order, um, but we'll kind of put that on ha- pause for a minute. The thing that makes the the phone a little bit different is, is you have an additional piece, which is, so imagine if you have the gas provider, but the piece that you have purchased for your house interacts with that as well, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. Now, so if everybody just had a phone and that phone was kind of common to everybody, I think you'd have a slightly better uh, argument. I think the problem, and I think what ends up sending people into similar, it, for example, I'll just be personal on this. One of the things that has made me an, uh, an Apple convert after hating Apple for years uh, was the ability to have uh, things work on the devices where I didn't have to fuss with it in lots of different ways. Again, you can open up these app stores and you can have additional app stores. It doesn't mean that I think lots of people would go through them because there is something to be said for having kind of an integration. So for example, I like having a store. So again, I don't want to restrict anybody's ability to have pornography, don't get me wrong, but I like being able to choose a store so that when my kids have a phone, they don't have access to pornographic material immediately. That that Um, sounds, I got to say, Trey, that your whole thing with Apple sounds like the most anti-libertarian (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I don't need choice. I want I want Big Brother and Cupertino making these decisions for me, so my life is well, easier. You know, knows it. Well, you know, Robert knows it, right? So the true the true libertarian 
agrees that there is an unlimited numbers of utopias. And so as long as we're freely restricting our own restrictions, uh, we are actually living our true libertarian self, there Mike. Come go. on. And whatever, whatever, whatever you need to tell yourself <laughs> about that, Trey. But, but yeah. So, but I, I think one thing, it seems to me this will, this will be years before this comes to any sort of conclusion. And oftentimes suits like this end with settlements. Well, again, you, Look to Microsoft. Yeah. I mean, it took it took four years for that to to, to wind yeah. all its way through. And I wouldn't be surprised to see a similar lawsuit against Apple at some point in the not too distant future. I don't imagine that would shock you either. No, I, it wouldn't. Um, you know, the only thing that's going to make it different is is as I understand the anti competitive practice laws in the United States. Uh, you know, you have to have a certain kind of market penetration. So it'd be interesting to see how they end up. You know, you'd have to make a case for that. I'm, I'm sure that's why they're starting with Android, because, again, iOS would be a much it's an easier anti anti competitive case because there is no side loading and there are no alternative stores like even uh, Samsung a possible on iOS. So in that sense, it's a, a more open and shut kind of deal. But I think they start with Android because of just market penetration. You know, that's interesting. I know you brought that up before because I was wondering about that, too. And maybe I just got bad, bad data. But I looked uh, I looked up market share and that this was at StatCounter.com. And according to their data from June of 2021, uh, they said that iOS has 57.6 percent of the U.S. smartphone market as compared to 42.06 for Android. So what? I mean, if that's correct. Oh, you know, I'll tell you what, I am so sorry. And we need, I needed to correct myself here. When I was giving those numbers, I looked this up because I was interested. In, I was looking at mo, uh, worldwide. Okay. And yeah. that wouldn't matter in this case. So worldwide, it's, it's uh, I am correct, it's 73, uh, 26. But you are absolutely right in the United States. And that would what is what would be more important here. So that's, that's uh, I'm, I'm glad that you point that out, Mike. So it will, it will be interesting to see. And, and again, no matter what happens, I think this will be years before we see any resolution. But another thing I think that seems, seems to me that both you and I agree on is that uh, Google uh, banning non-app store apps from buying advertising on Google or YouTube, that, that just that seems like something that should go away. Well, and, you know, in all honesty, I, th I think the broader issue here is Alphabet, <laughs> which is is when you have these kinds of deep integrations um, vertically. I think that's where you can see some of the worst kind of anti-competitive practices. And that's that's what's happening there. Uh, and, and I think that's where there's a lot of ripeness to say, wait a second, you can't not allow you can't prioritize your own subsidiaries every single time when your company is large as Alphabet. Right. If you're, if you're going to do that, you just need to you basically have to have it all under all one company like like Apple, basically, and have complete iron fisted control as opposed to. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, again, an Alphabet is a, is a giant. I mean, I for, you know, almost as big as Apple. Alphabet. Yeah. It, 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 <laughs> it, it, and what they control underneath is is monumental. It's, it's crazy because you've got search, you've got their hardware divisions, yeah, no. you've got their OS division. I, I think sometimes for individuals, it's even kind of hard to wrap their heads around how large Alphabet really is when, and what it encompasses. Microsoft and Amazon, for that matter, because they do all of the um, server side storage. Sure. And I think for most consumers, we just don't think about how huge these companies are and how much they control. Absolutely. All right. Well, before we move on to our next story, we were just going to take a quick break and we will be right back. All right. So speaking of big tech and lawsuits, Trey, this week, Donald Trump announced that he was filing class action lawsuits against Facebook, Twitter and Google, owner of YouTube. The suits allege that the companies violated the former president's First Amendment rights by suspending his accounts. Now, on the face of it, this wouldn't seem to make a whole lot of sense because the First Amendment doesn't apply to non-state actors. And but what thank Trump, you, yeah, that you know, yeah, we're, I knew we'd be pretty much right on. But <laughs> but what Trump's attorneys are arguing, it's an interesting argument. Not to say it's not a ridiculous argument, but it's interesting is that these companies are de facto state actors because they've been working directly with government to censor speech, and the lawsuits also asked the courts to strike down the portion of sec Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which says that service providers aren't liable for any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be 
obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. Now, most legal experts say there's not much chance of this going anywhere, especially as similar lawsuits have been repeatedly dismissed out of hand. And uh, I think it's safe to assume that the former president, or at least his attorneys, they're full, uh, fully aware of this. So, Trey, what do you make of all this? Yeah. <laughs> Look, I mean, we, we, we've talked about this on the show before. And so you've already mentioned the First Amendment. We just need to be clear about it. It restricts governmental action from penalizing individuals for certain kind for having speech, right? I mean, that that is what your civil liberties are all about. It's not banning other people from requiring. So the fact that we have First Amendment doesn't mean that the Washington Post has to run your your uh, stupid opinion piece. Uh, it just means that you can distribute your opinion piece in any way that's legal, and the content of that opinion piece can't put you in jeopardy, legal jeopardy, right? Um, as long as you're, you know, it, it's actual speech, according to this, uh, the Supreme Court. We want to get into all that. Now, the other thing about this particular order, and you mentioned that, is they want to undo uh, Section 230. But of course, if they did, like, in other words, if the court did that, what that would mean is, is all these platforms would actually have to crack down more uh-huh. <laughs> on speech from individuals like Trump. As a matter of fact, his ban probably would have had to have been in place much, much sooner if there was no Section 230, because he repeatedly did things that could have been in violate that could have put Twitter and Facebook in in liability positions, right? The only reason they're not in the position of, uh, of being liable for the things that Trump posted is because of the Section 230 protection. So it's another example. I mean, it appears to me, I think, you know, you mentioned there, Mike, that you think that maybe Trump recognizes what's going on. The more that I have read, you know, we have uh, books coming out about kind of the last days of the Trump presidency, what's going around on January 6th, for example. And and I, I, I come back to mind. I don't think that Trump is is was brilliant in that sense. I think that he is so incredibly ignorant that he he doesn't even recognize the contradiction in this. Uh, and, and lawyers are just going to build up some hours. But of course, as we've seen, that doesn't always mean you're going to get a payout from yeah. Trump. Uh, this isn't going to go anywhere. Well, you know, what I, this I, is, is, is it, what this is, is a fundraising effort. I mean, what, yeah. 40, 24, 48 hours later, he was already sending out the uh, text messages and the emails saying, hey, you know, do this. Um, that's what I think this yeah. is. Primarily. Well, you know, and on your on that point you made about, you know, the Washington Post doesn't have an obligation to post your to, to put up your whatever your rantings about what have you. That actually would be compelling a private actor to speak, which is which is even exactly. a bridge even further. It's like and so it, it's completely ridiculous, especially given the fact that when Donald Trump, just like when you or I signed on the Facebook. Now, we didn't actually I'm guessing I didn't read the, the, the user agreement, but it said, you know, hey, we can kick you off if you do stuff we don't like. And that's, you know, that's it is about the most unconservative, unfree enterprise, unfirst amendment position you can imagine somebody taking. Yes, I mean, it, it would be similar to saying that, you know, the universe, you know, my private university has to allow, I don't know, fill in the blank, uh, even though it, it disagrees with with our operating uh, premises. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, what, when you're coming here, you're signing on uh, to a, to a specific kind of environment. And you have to you'd have to undo that across all of these levels. <laughs> but the other bit here that I think that that comes down to this is one of the other problems I think a lot of people have, and they misconstrue the First Amendment. The First Amendment is also not a guarantee that other people either a have to take your position seriously or b can't critique and or ridicule it. Yeah. Right. I mean, in, in the competition of ideas. Just because somebody says, I think your idea is so heinous, I'm not going to amplify it, is just as valid as speech uh, as whatever the comment you were making is. Uh, and, you know, and, and that heinousness does, I mean, so we don't all have to agree on what's heinous, right? So uh, Ken and I, a couple of weeks ago, we were, we were kind of laughing and joking about the fact that the two of us were not exactly, 
we, we're not, um, we, we don't curse. We were going to say like, we're going to curse at each right. other or something right. like, I remember just that. Kind of uh-huh. like, we don't do that. Right. Um, uh, so, you know, so for us, you know, maybe some language is just deeply reprehensible and, you know, I wouldn't speak out against it and somebody else wouldn't. Well, you can't force me <laughs> to, you know, be okay with it. And that's, per- again, precisely what Trump would be arguing in this kind of yeah. case. It's, but, I, you know, there's also this larger question of Section 230, those liability protections. And I, I actually, in this in this sense, I agree that Section 230, I wouldn't say needs to be uh, thrown out, but I do think it needs to be revised. But my difference with the Trump camp here is, and many conservatives, is I wouldn't focus on the part, that, part of the act that I read, but rather the part that uh, deems providers of what they call the interactive computer service to not be publishers, which I've said so many times seems to me to be completely ridiculous because if you as a if you as a uh, corporate entity are making decisions about who gets what stories, whether that's through, a, you know, a bunch of people sitting around a table like in traditional newspaper sort of things at an editorial meeting or whether you've designed an algorithm, you're still making editorial decisions about who gets what. And so I, I think the idea that Facebook or YouTube isn't a publisher where the New York Times or Fox News is. That's just that's just simply wrong. And it's just a case of just a case of the law not uh, being behind technology. And that definitely needs to change, I think. Well, and let's not put the fact that part of the reason for that being there, Mike, is sexism. Right. Uh, There are kind of inherent sexist structures in that. And one of the things that would radically change a Twitter others would be is that they would have to more carefully police and be responsible for things when you have individuals oftentimes harassing women. I, I think that is a big part of what makes uh, what made 230 possible, especially early on. Yeah. But um, well, see, I, I would argue that they wouldn't have to be responsible if they were just like a like a Reddit sort of thing where they're just saying we're just providing the framework. And people get stuff and they can choose to follow. But they don't do people. that. You're right. right. Exactly. But they, yeah, they push material out to you. And so I think that's the distinction I would make. So if you want to be like a Reddit or if you just want to be like a web service provider where you're providing space, that's fine. But once you start making decisions about who gets what for whatever reason, then you are a publisher. Now, the other distinction I'd make, I'd probably... I would probably put in sort of like an exemption, a cutout, maybe for some smaller startup social media companies to give them some sort of protection below a certain size just so they can actually get out, you know, get out of the gate. Now, that might be problematic, but I think in the larger sense of trying to encourage competition, there might be some benefit to doing that. But, uh, but yeah, there's no question to me that that Facebook and uh, Facebook and YouTube are, uh, are, are, you know, and Twitter are publishers. So now, now here's an interesting. Now here's an actual interesting question about this, and I've <laughs> thought about it in terms of 230 before, and it gets to what you're talking about there, Mike. What about in terms of uh, artificial intelligence? So, and in, in what I mean by this is, so you have a difference uh, between, so for example, Twitter, you can either have just the running commentary of whatever's happened sequentially, which I think would more meet your yeah. uh, Reddit threshold. Or you can use the algorithm uh, to put things up that that based on your clicking and your behavior. What what do you think about those kind of algorithmic issues? Because I think that's going to be one thing that companies like Twitter or Facebook would say. Well, we're not actually making editorial choices. Instead, we've got an algorithm. Does an algorithm count? Oh yeah, as an editorial choice. Oh yeah, it, I mean, I mean, it it is a mechanism through which certain people get certain material. Certain material is promoted. So, I, I mean, whether it's because you think it's newsworthy or because they think it's profitable, it's still. Those are not, you know, those are decisions that are being made for you. Now, I think it would be a closer question if Twitter and Facebook said, "Okay, we are going to give you the opportunity to opt in or opt out of the algorithm. Well, then that might be. That's why I bring up Twitter. That that is precisely Twitter. You can either have the the timeline or you can have an algorithm. And and, and I think maybe if if, say, the uh, the default were opt out and you actually had to actively opt in to that service, well, then that could be an argument, I think, a a much stronger argument for that. And maybe things will go in that direction. But I think if that's the case, then probably you have a situation where, in reality, most people want their little filter bubbles and want their algorithms for all sorts of reasons. And then 
we're kind of right back where we started, unfortunately. But at least other, you know, at least some people would have that option then. And I don't think a lot of people aren't even aware on Twitter, for yeah. instance, that they have that option, or even in Facebook that you can download, you know, you can download various apps and things that will take, you know, will will remove that algorithm and just give you kind of the as it happens sort of thing, you know. No, and that's a whole nother really important area for media today, which is the ways that we, you know, we've we've always tended as humans to want to be in that echo chamber. Um, but today algorithms end up kind of accelerating that process, probably in ways we don't even always realize. But I recognize that's tangential to the, the primary question here, which is, you know, what what's the First Amendment gonna say about this and where does Trump's suit that move forward? So, you know, we've been talking a lot about competitive type stuff and lawsuits, and actually it's been kind of a theme. And I want to continue on with that theme with another story about competition. But before we get to that, let's just take a quick break and we will be right back with that. So, Trey, you know, like I said, we've been talking a lot about monopolies and competitions, and we'll continue that theme now by taking a look at the executive order that President Biden signed late this week on promoting competition in the American economy. There's a lot there. 70, 72 specific initiatives uh, and, and directing over a dozen federal agencies to implement policies in various ways to promote competition. And there's we could do multiple shows on just this. We I, we won't do that, I promise. But I, I do I do think we should talk about some of those key initiatives, like, for instance, directing the FDA to work with states on importing prescription, re-importing prescription drugs from Canada, as well as developing a comprehensive plan to lower drug prices in 45 days or directing the FTC to um, to examine hospital mergers that might be harmful to patient care, especially in rural communities, uh, increased regulatory scrutiny of tech company mergers, especially when a dominant player in a market tries to acquire a potential or an emerging competitor. Uh, and there's also encouraging the FTC to limit or ban non-compete agreements, as well as unnecessary occupational licensing restrictions. And finally, something that's been a big issue for me for a long time, uh, trying to cut down on issues revolving, uh, involving what are called right to repair or the, the companies that actually actively work against right to repair, like, well, I should, should I mention the name, Trey? You know, oh, you should. I mean, it's one, it's, it's one of the negatives. I'll, I actually, won't disagree. Apple. Yeah. So, you know, Trey, you are a proud libertarian on a lot of issues. So I would expect that at least in principle, you'd be in favor of of a lot of things that promote private sector competition. And so when you looked at this executive order, did you see, you know, some things that you thought, yeah, this is, this is some good stuff or, or not? Well, you know, another one that I think is an important one that, oh, yeah. uh, that I liked that you didn't mention on the list was uh, to have federal regulators craft some new rules on data collection and user surveillance practices, especially oh, yeah, right, from yes. Facebook, Google, Amazon, uh, Apple. Because um, that, that was another area for me that I think that is really, has not received enough attention. Um, in, in other words, I think, I think we've moved out further in front of it than we've thought about it even collectively as people. Um, now, as a whole, the executive order, I was curious what you thought about this. I wasn't uber surprised. I mean, I guess what, what I'm seeing here is Biden packaging a bunch of things together to to have a, a cool media moment? Um, but what I see is is a head of state, you know, trying to turn the the giant ship, and that's what you always have. You have presidents who are attempting, you know, there's just kind of this idea that presidents come in and they're like controlling a motorboat, right? You know, they can just kind of zip around, they can you know turn it to the right. No, it's like that. Sh- it's it. like that. It's it's like that ship in the Suez Canal. That's <laughs> what that's like. Yes, you know? <laughs> it is exactly like that. Uh, and so this, I think, is Biden trying to have a have a push because what's happening here for listeners is this is all pushing down to executive agencies. So these agencies then will have to kind of look at all of these different executive order pieces and decide how to implement those uh, into regulatory law. Uh, and so I mean, and then they'll get we're sued. talking about kind of, exactly <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, always. I mean, that's just part of the. 
Isn't that part? Isn't that part of the the, yeah. the, the lawmaking process? Well, I think, I think that's that's a really great point, Trey, because I think a lot of people don't think, well, it's an executive order, then that's done. But this process can take many years, just working through the regulation writing process, and in in part. They, it takes so long because these agencies are well aware that they're going to be challenged in court. And so they have to try to lawsuit proof these things and going back and forth. There's public comment periods. And so it's going to be many years in some cases before elements of this uh, actually come into play. Yeah. And so I, mean, I, I think listeners, it's always worth having kind of that context. Yeah. And I think sometimes for, for you and me, Mike, it's easy to take that for granted, right? I mean, we're yep. scholars of this, right? I'm a presidency scholar. You know, I'm, I'm constantly looking at it and it's easy to forget that others don't recognize this process. It's its own kind of legislative. Yeah. It's its own rulemaking process and it, and it has its own idiosyncratic. Absolutely. I don't disagree with you. There are things that I liked about this, things I didn't like. I was excited about, uh, you know, thinking more carefully about um, uh, data collection uh, I really think that's on the on the frontier of freedom. Um, some of these, I think, for conservatives are also wins, which is why he's highlighting. I you mean, know, uh, Trump, yeah. hating yes. to love him, he wanted to do the Canada drug import thing, right? That was one of his big. Let, like, this is just kind of pushing yeah. that initiative forward. Yeah, let's talk about that. I wanted to talk about that and a couple other things that I I agree have have or should have some bipartisan support. And that drug reimportation thing, as you mentioned, it was pushed by the Trump administration, especially toward the end in 2020. And there is really strong bipartisan support for this. In a recent survey from the Kaiser Family Foundation, uh, support of 75% of Republicans, 75% of Democrats, 82% of independents. So, I mean, this is a this is a big political win, you would think, especially given the fact that prescription drug prices in Canada are on average around two-thirds less expensive than they are in the U.S. because Canada, like most other big countries, uh, developed countries, has uh, regulations in price that uh, regulations in place that limit what drug manufacturers can charge. And we don't really have that here. It's kind of whatever the market can bear. And so what we have here in the United States, and this is a very Trumpian well, kind of it's, theme. It's even worse than just what the market can bear. It's the it's the kind of rules that can be made between companies producing the drugs and the individuals paying for the drugs. So it's not yeah. as even even as if you have a true market taking place here. That's and a good I, point. I'm, yep. I'm, I'm yep. careful to point that out because I think in a true market, I don't know where it would be, so I don't want to, you know, overstep. But I do want to say that, you know, you don't even get a true market deal. And I, I, we'll come back to that. Yeah. Some other medical devices. In a no, second. no, that's a great point. Uh, to give to give folks a kind of a broader sense of what this means and how weird the U.S. system is. So according to 2019 data that I got from uh, healthcare data, data analytics company, uh, IQVIA, I guess IQVIA, U.S. pharmaceutical sales in 2019, which is the last year I could find data on, they were $501.2 billion. The number two country for sales, China, considerably bigger, was at $94.9 billion. That's not even 20% of the U.S. total in sales. And the best data I could find suggested that the U.S. total amounts to around 40% of all worldwide prescription drug revenues. And that's this is for a country, the United States, that makes up around 4.25% of world population. So in other words, this is this is where I said it's a Trumpian theme. Basically, the outrageous prices we are paying in the United States for drugs are subsidizing low prices in the rest of the world. So if you want an America first issue, boy, this is your America first issue. Which it was. I mean, this, in fact, yeah. was one of the America first issues. Now, another piece of this though, that I was excited about on the Biden front was pulling things out from behind the prescription counter. And one of the big items in the executive order is doing that for hearing aids, mm -hmm. for example. Uh, and, and I think that's the other bit of this is, is when you pull that out of that fake marketplace and put it into the real marketplace, you open up competition and you open up the possibility for this to be a whole lot cheaper. Um, there, it's incredible how often, as a matter of me, I can even speak to this in my own, uh, my uh, my daughter, Lizzie, uh, she has like a, a skin fungal thing that can flare up. It's, it can happen to anybody in Oklahoma, apparently. Um, but if you're a certain kind of person, it can happen. So you can buy this cream to put on, right? 
So she got a prescription, but of course the pharmacist said, well, fortunately you can get almost the same exact strength over the counter. She said, you should do that because even though it's exactly the same thing, uh, it is about 10 times cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same stuff. It is the same stuff, but it's 10 times cheaper just to get it over here instead of over there. She said, well, unless you need to do it through your insurance, which we didn't need to. So it wasn't a big deal, but yeah. Well, you know, the problem, Trey, and, and I, I generally don't defend big pharma for a lot of reasons, but I, I think, you know, they, they do make a reasonable point saying that look at where most of the drug innovation and R&D is being done. And in part, you know, that's the United States in large part. And because they they have these profit margins and a lot of drug developments just don't end up working out. And so I think we do need to be cognizant of the fact that there could potentially be negative side effects for any kind of like significant regulations or big, large scale reimportation, because what what might that mean for research and development, a lot of which happens in the United States, which is not to say we don't do this in a careful, controlled way and see what happens, but understand that this isn't just a ridiculous point that the drug companies are making. I agree, but I would I would suggest, and this isn't in the executive order, is that there we could in the United we put some additional barriers on drug development that I think we could relax that could help mitigate some of those. But I recognize that's a contentious issue. Yeah. No, I, no I, I, you mean in terms of the FDA uh, regulatory yes. approval? In fact, in a lot of other countries, it's not nearly as onerous. And if you follow, I, for various reasons, I follow the, the medical device market. And insert, that's a weird thing to say, right? In certain ways. But, <laughs> but, but what I've noticed medical is... Medical devices do you follow? Well, no. well you know, <laughs> like, for instance, if you're interested in, I'm fascinated by wearable tech. And if you follow, for instance, things in like uh, wearable blood pressure or continuous glucose monitoring, that sort of these are things oftentimes that have been approved by regulators in uh, in European countries before they've been approved by regulators in the United States. And so that that kind of thing, you know, I, I, I joke with my yeah, wife. You I, could significantly bring down some of those yeah. costs. I mean, we know I mean, there's the research demonstrates it could be significantly less because you can do comparative analysis. And that's yeah. what you're talking about yeah, right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, opening. But it seems to me, you know, your system is broken. When you're talking about reimporting drugs from Canada for the U.S., that's, that's, if that's not a sign that you need to just start from, you know, start re, that's just that's just crazy. But anyway, I, it seems like we're we're at least on kind of the same page there. The other thing I wanted to point out that kind of has flown under the radar is this blue collar non compete agreements thing because. Many people won't know this, but there's actually some bipartisan agreement on this. Uh, early in 2020, Florida Republican Marco Rubio, he actually introduced a legislation on this called the Freedom to Compete Act, which would ban employers from requiring low-wage workers from signing non-compete agreements. Because mostly, I think, if people think about non-compete agreements, they think about, well, this is for like these big executives. They don't go to another company and take the trade secrets and all that, but not anymore. In recent years, companies have used them to really lock in workers. Um, uh, FTC Commissioner Kelly Slaughter, back in 2020, she was at this workshop. She said that somewhere between 16 and 18 percent of all U.S. workers are currently covered by a non-compete agreement, including 12 percent of workers who earn less than $20,000 per year and 15 percent of workers making between 20 and 40,000 per year. And to give you an example. Uh, for a, a long time, sandwich makers at Jimmy John's. These are not people who have, you know, obscure, great knowledge of that's going to damage the company if they go somewhere else. But they were required to sign a two-year non-compete agreement that prohibited them from making sandwiches at any sandwich place within a three-mile radius of any Jimmy John's anywhere in the United States. Now, they were sued and they, they eliminated it, but that, that's just one example. And to me... That is such a clear restriction of uh, uh, that has nothing to do with trade secrets or harming the company. That's just that's just making it harder for labor mobility. And that's, I think, a very anti-competitive practice. Well, and I think this is an, this is another example where. Markets work when we allow them to yes. work, but oftentimes we don't allow them to work in many ways because there is a kind of a, 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 a desire not that, you know, 
when companies are doing it, we want to have markets. But when individuals are doing it, we don't want to have markets. And we could have a whole <laughs> yeah. we could have a whole conversation about this. But workers need to have the opportunity to have a free market because that's what's going to create their demand and their price to go up. I have always had issues with non-compete agreements. And I'll even go so far as to say the idea that somebody learns something uh, at your job means that they can't compete with you seems to strike at the very heart of a true free market, which is, I mean, of course, you're taking a risk that somebody's going to have kind of secrets about how your thing works. But here's the deal. That's part of what you get as being a worker is you're getting skills potentially, right? So the idea that you suddenly don't get to use those because some company had them first, that strikes me as unusual. And anyway, I mean, again, that's a little bit broader than what's going on here, but I I agree. Markets in general are what uh, are best for individuals. And in a lot of ways, we restrict this, I think, in ways people don't always realize often to the disadvantage of people like the sandwich makers or another great example would be, I don't know if you know about this one, but between uh, grocery retail outlets, Uh right? Um, So like Kroger, for example, has a lot of, you know, that people who that actually what they do is they put their products on Kroger shelves. There's a whole uh, process from like Kroger and others, you know, my other places do it as well, but I know Kroger the best. They have non-compete agreements between those companies and people working in Kroger for their corporate offices, for example, because they don't want people to take the skills of doing this and doing it to another market. It's another great example of where uh, you're, and as a result, you can pay those people less. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the other the other thing I wanted to mention before we talk briefly about, you'll humor me, we can talk about right to repair, but uh, the tech company merger thing, because I think in the past, the idea has been that, well, as long as there's not a monopoly, but what we've seen is uh, in many instances, you know, Alphabet, Google, uh, Facebook, what have you, just buying up competitors before they can become a real competitive threat, essentially. And that you're uh, thinking like Facebook and Instagram, e- for example. Exactly, that sort of thing. And I think that would, though, that it seems to me, although I applaud uh, President Biden's efforts to try to get, you know, the FTC to take a closer look at this, really, it seems to me that's not going to go anywhere until we significantly revise antitrust law to reflect what life is like in kind of a more digital age. Well, and even if you change those laws, Mike, I mean, one of the things that have, that makes that so lucrative is, is there is a whole advantage to starting software companies, creating something new that people want, selling it, and then moving on to the next yeah. thing. So I think one of the reasons you see as, you know, kind of going back to an argument in a minute ago, I think the market itself is such that there is a market for people to create apps, not in the desire or even platforms, not in the desire to want to continue it on long term, but purposely to sell it to other yeah. companies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so I, I, I don't know how much. I mean, of course, there's probably some things you can do, but I see that as being a bit of a marketplace uh, uh, phenomenon. And again, I think that has to do with the unique nature of our interaction with software and hardware right now. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And, you know, finally, like I said, the the right to repair thing is always because I've I've noticed over time that there are I'm a tinkerer. You know, I I have all sorts of tools (laughs) and I love to just take things apart and see how they work and that sort of thing. But more and more, not only has that become more difficult, you have to find different specialized tools and, you know, they're using weird little torques or semi-torques, exotic bits and that sort of thing. But to the point now where oftentimes it actually voids your warranty if you go anywhere but the authorized service center, that sort of thing. And Or if you open up yourself. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, I, I feel like this is my device. I have bought this from you, Apple or whomever. And if I want to open it up and look around, well, then that is my right. And it seems to me that that is more and more going away. And I understand the ostensible argument, you know, Apple saying, well, you know, our only our genius bar people who have the incredible uh, abilities to do this. We don't want people to have substandard repairs. But to me, the argument is, well, we have a right to decide whether or not we want an Apple authorized repair that's going to be awesome in your you or i want to go to the shop down the street that might just be okay but i'm okay with that because i don't have three hundred dollars to spend i have thirty dollars to spend or what have you yeah i mean and you can you can do that right now i think what the i think what a lot of the consternation about is and if i'm understanding what i'm reading in the executive order about this correctly what uh, biden is trying to uh, direct agencies to shift is 
are we building things in ways in which they can be serviceable or not? Yeah. Right. I mean, of course, you I mean right now you can take your Apple device and have it serviced other places. Um, but Apple, dev- for example, I mean, I'm, I, you know, are, have we soldered, in other words, have we permanently attached things like the memory, memory. Yeah. to the main board in a way so that you couldn't tinker with it? So at the heart of the right to repair isn't just the right to go down the street, which you can do right now, but rather the right to have devices put together in a way that when you open them up, you can actually do things to them. You know, and, and, and that, I think, is what's a little bit more difficult because there is a, a trade-off and a balance between one of the reasons that uh, you know Mac- MacBooks and uh, contemporary tablets like the iPad are able to pack in what they do is, is they put this bat, you know, they they kind of blow the battery into all this space. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, as opposed to back in the day when the battery was attached um, manually, you could pull that on and off. Well, in a right to repair world, you would need to have a battery where if I opened it up, I can and can remove it easily and quickly. And I think that's at, at base what this is about. You know, so for example, you talk about the torque wrenches. I'm I uh, I don't know if anybody knows this. I collect and maintain and restore uh, video games. I love that. So I have every console in the history of mankind, and I can actually restore them. I have tools for that. So I like to get in there and do that. So you know, Nintendo consoles, for example, have all kinds of bizarre tools to make it harder to get mm-hmm. in. A right to repair would say. Look, you don't have to get in there, but you've got to have some kind of standardized way to get in, you know. So or at least, a, or at least a more really... extreme right to repair. And and that it seems to me though that while I that's one of those things where I am absolutely for a world that looks more like that, it also seems to me that it's very tricky and difficult, and in many instances maybe inadvisable to try to legislate that as opposed to letting the market sort of. I mean, if people. If people are willing to pay for things that they can repair themselves as opposed to, well, then they should be allowed to make that decision. But I am uncomfortable with government going so far as to dictate the sort of torque screws that you would use or something like that. And I would expect you would be as well. Well, and that's and I think that's what makes this hard is, is that, you know, in your initial formulation of it, I don't think when you think of the right to remove the right to repair movement. I don't think many of them, if I'm understanding it correctly, Mike, are like trying to say, hey, we should be able to go down to the local shop. I think what they're trying to argue is, hey, things need to be built differently and required to be built differently. Yeah, and that, that's something that I don't really think is is amenable to any sort of a uh, legislative fix. But uh, uh, Well, so- no, I mean, look, look to other industries like the automobile. You know, once upon a time, you could get into an automobile with minimal tools and today you <laughs> you yeah. need some of those macbooks yeah. <laughs> to even diagnose what's going on absolutely uh, so I, there are advantages to being there but of course the disadvantages is the average person can't get into it um and you're right do hey. we want do we want to have a world in which government says well if joe schmo can't take it apart with a wrench then you can't sell it yeah and, you know I'm, that, I'm that strikes that. me as problematic yeah you know, but the larger picture here is that there is this, uh, unfortunately, more and more a myth that the United States is this hotbed of competition. And that's that's become less and less true over time because, of course, businesses don't want competition. They fight very hard to get as much as little competition as possible, often by, you know, influencing legislators. And you know, I would I would argue that even Democrats and Republicans, and we'll we'll talk about this on the bonus show. You know, one of the reasons they don't like a lot of these proposed institutional reforms, say like ranked choice voting, is because that might threaten their duopoly of power, and that's no good. You know, competition is a is a pain in the butt if you're the market leader. You don't want you don't want that. Um, and and I uh, a while back, this was back in two thousand twenty twenty. I interviewed a guy named Thomas Philippon. He's a he's a finance professor at uh, NYU. He's also been on the uh, monetary advisory board panel of the Fed, the Fed, New York Fed. He wrote this book called The Great Reversal, How America Gave Up on Free Markets. It was really eye opening. And basically, he did a lot of research that, that he concluded that, you know, America really was a lot more competitive than, say, much of Europe up until around 2000. And then our structures and our rules started changing to where in many cases, a lot of countries in Europe 
are more competitive and there are fewer barriers. You know, we mentioned things like the FDA as opposed to uh, many European medical regulatory, that sort of thing. And it really opened my eyes and I'll, I'll make sure to post a, post a link to the book in the interview because it was a, it, it was a really interesting, I thought, uh, conversation fits right into really everything we've been talking about on today's today's episode, which is practically, you know, like the competition episode. It kind of is. Well, you know, my and this is one of the things I know a lot of times we'll get questions on discords about, well, like, why does Trey end up agreeing with Mike or Ken? And I think on some of the substantive issues we do, I think where we still and continue to disagree is, is, is oftentimes here is that I think progressives desire to fix many of these things is to increase the size of regulatory agencies, their scope, their reach or government. Whereas oftentimes my response is to say, well, I agree with you on the problem, but I don't, I see that is oftentimes being the issue leading to less competitive behavior. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, there's uh, a, but, there's a part of me that is, uh, uh, that is somewhat anarchist and now uh, people don't know what that term means at least they have this kind of idea that you're kind of wild no government but uh, anarchism at least in one sense really is has a problem with both kind of big unconstrained business and big unconstrained government and it's kind of an argument for just the two of them go together exactly and so uh, an argument that we can only have real freedom if we kind of downsize both elements, uh, both sides of that equation. And that can be a tricky thing. And there are a lot of things in modern anarchism that I disagree with, but I think it's a viewpoint that is, is maybe more marginalized than it should be, because in a lot of ways, I think that sort of bigness is an enemy of human freedom, whether that bigness is coming from the market or from the state. Hey, what? On today's episode, uh, Mike and Trey both agree to be libertarian. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, anarchist more for me, I think, than libertarian. But anyway, um, so you know, uh, we're 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 about out of time. But I thought we could end today's show with some recommendations, if that's good for you. It sounds like a lot of fun. All right. Um, do you want to start off, or should I? Why don't you go first? Okay. Um, well, for my first recommendation is a uh, TV show called AP Bio. I don't know if you've heard of this before. Um, it's uh, it's on. I think it's only. It might be. It's streaming on Peacock. That's how I watch. It might be on some other platforms. I don't know. But it's a it's a, a comedy about a, a Harvard philosophy professor. This really kind of full of himself sort of guy who ends up losing his job and he has to go back live in his dead mother's house in Toledo where he ostensibly teaches AP bio though his one rule is that he will not actually teach AP bio it's uh, the guy who's the guy who's the main character is Glenn Howerton I believe is his name and he's he was one of the main characters in still is I think in it's always sunny in Philadelphia it's a uh, it's uh it's one of the funniest shows and it's really has a good heart it, it, the first couple episodes it might not seem that way but the more my wife and I've gotten into watching it the more we truly just really love this show it's a a great fun like i said just show with a lot of heart i think uh, in the end and and funny funny as heck as well uh pat noswell has a as a role and he's uh, i think he's a really funny guy but that's my tv show recommendation my book recommendation is a book called The Cartel, one of the books I read on vacation I had recently by a guy named Don Winslow. Uh, it's the second book in uh, what's called The Power of the Dog Trilogy, and it's all about Mexican drug cartels and a DEA and just really just in-depth kind of stuff. It's fiction. Uh, I, I loved it. It was just a fascinating read, totally had me wrapped and he's a, is a great writer. And if you're interested in that sort of thing, I highly recommend uh, the cartel though. I'd start with the power of the dog, which I read a few years ago, which is how I got to the cartel. So those are my recommendations for this week. Fun. Now I'm going to be weird. I don't, I don't think I've done this one before, uh, but I'm actually going to recommend a video game. Uh, okay. Mike, um, because you know, let's be fun. Uh, so my, uh, I told, well, earlier we were talking about how I you know, play video games, love to do that with the kids and whatnot. We've been uh, playing through the Master Chief collection recently. But the game I'm going to recommend, it's just a couple years old, so it's, it's perfect. You can get it from most any platform. Uh, Assassin's Creed Syndicate. Uh, it, and what's really fun about this is, is that it has recreated London uh, in the uh, 1830s. And, I mean, like, down to the architect. It is 
crazy fun to kind wow. of run around London in this past and see this. The story and everything is fun and ridiculous as it always is for Assassin's Creed. But what's so cool is that they actually tie everything into actual history. So you're running across all of these figures like Darwin and other people who would have been in these parts of the city at the right time. And they're doing things like they would have been doing then and you get to interact. Uh, but if you just want to really have a chance to kind of see the city, kind of see a little bit about uh, London life, I, I find getting to interact with things to be kind of a fun way to do that. And so I've been having a lot of fun uh, uh, going through Assassin's Creed and kind of running through the town, uh, town the city of London. Uh, I kind of like to interact with things over the summer. I, I read and read and read. And so in the summer, I like to kind yeah. of experience things. And so for me, that's playing a big open world game. And so oh, very cool. I highly recommend anybody who likes to play a game, uh, Assassin's Creed Syndicate. Excellent. Well, as I expected, Trey, as I said before we started, I, I thought we would not end up having time to get through everything we wanted to. But if you are a Patreon supporter on the bonus show this week, we will be talking about President Biden on the Afghanistan withdrawal, uh, rank choice voting and the New York mayoral primary. And even we're going to get into critical race theory, a hot topic for a long time that we haven't discussed on the show really to this point. That and maybe even a couple of listener questions if we have the time. And all that will be available for you on Wednesday morning if you are uh, one of our Patreon supporters. And if you're not, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys and you can sign up and become a supporter. And remember, if you would like that midweek episode, but for whatever reason, financially, you just can't support the show right now. Totally not a problem. Email me, Mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you all set up. Also, if you really, if you could, it would be great if you could subscribe to the show and especially leave ratings and reviews and sharing your favorite episodes, which we hope this is one of them, on social media. That is a huge help. That word of mouth advertising is a lot better than any kind of ads we could buy if we bought if we bought ads, which we really don't so much. But anyway, um finally, if you just want to reach us about anything at in particular or general at random, mail at politicsguys.com as our email. We're also on Facebook and Twitter and you will find links to that in our show notes. A special thanks to our executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you join us.